You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning, Creekside. It is, uh, it is particularly good to see you. This is our 31st Labor Day Sunday in the history of Creekside. And... This is traditionally the lowest attended Sunday of the year. So that makes your presence here this morning doubly important. You just got a few more jewels in your crown when you get to heaven for coming today. So thanks for being here. If this is your uh, first Sunday with us, welcome. And uh, welcome to those who are watching us online. I'm John Bruce, one of the pastors here. And if you're here with us today for the first time, we have a gift we'd like to give to you. you. We have a a sippy cup, a water bottle, or a coffee tumbler, and you can pick up one of those out at the uh, information desk, which is right outside here. If any of you uh, have prayer requests or would like more information about our church, there is a card in the seat back in front of you. Uh, You can fill that out and drop it over in the offering slot, and we will pray for you or get you the information that you need or whatever we can do for you. I want to talk for a minute to teenage and adult men. We have our, uh, our annual men's retreat coming up uh, the first weekend of October. Starts at 7 and ends at noon on Sunday. It's at Mount Hermon. Uh, and this year it's going to be a great time where our theme is the man in the mirror. It's taken from the book, verse from Proverbs. It says, as, as water reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. And the, the, the real you is the person inside of you, the, the way you think. And so we're going to be talking about winning the battle for the mind and uh, just handling uh, distraction, uh, being able to discern between right and wrong and good and evil and truth and error, um, handling despair, all the battles we face as, as men. And I hope you'll think about coming um, uh, it's, a, it's a great time. There is single and double occupancy uh, facilities available, not facilities, places to sleep available. And uh, I know some of you are still worried about COVID. Look, you have much better chance at this retreat of getting a dislocated shoulder or, or pulling a hamstring than you do of COVID. So man up and, uh, and uh, join us. It's a, it's a great time and I hope, hope, hope you'll join us for that. Last week, we began a new series, which we're calling Undivided Devotion on the letter of James in the New Testament. James was Jesus' little brother, and he didn't begin to follow Christ until after he saw Jesus risen from the dead. And he writes this letter to Jewish Christians, people who bring a rich background in the Old Testament to their newfound faith in Christ. And the reason we're calling it undivided devotion is because I think James understood that one of the weaknesses for all religious people is that we tend to substitute correct beliefs for correct behavior. And so he writes a very practical, down-to-earth letter about how to make Jesus Lord of every area of our lives. How, uh, 
how, how to treat the poor, especially widows and orphans, how to, how to treat people who are different from you, how to talk, how to handle your business or your money, how to handle sickness, just all the areas of life, the difference that following Christ will make. And the first area that, that James talks about, which we began last week, is how do you handle suffering? if Christ is the Lord of your life. And uh, we're going to pick up from where Jeff left off last week, so let's pray and we'll jump in. Thank you for your word that is alive, Father. Again, we remember our absolute dependence on your spirit to speak to us through your word, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey. I pray that you will draw us near to you, and help us to hear your voice and what you would have to say to us. Thank you for the word which performs this work in us who believe. We pray that your work will be performed today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to pick up where Jeff left off last week. We're right in the middle of, if, if I'm really following Jesus as Lord, how will that affect the way I handle suffering? And, and so the verses we start out with last week where verses 2 through 4, considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The people that James is writing to knew a lot about trials. They had experienced ostracism and even persecution from the larger Jewish community because of their faith in Christ. Right now, they're in the middle of a big famine and an economic downturn. And, of course, for the last 100 years or so, they've been under the thumb of Rome. And so these are people who are well acquainted with suffering. And yet, James says, rather than simply enduring suffering, rejoice in it. Which is a strange thing to say, isn't it? Rejoice when you suffer. Why? Well, he tells them knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. When, when James talks about trials, he's talking about anything that tests my faith. Temptation, conflict, failure, uh, a broken pipe under the sink, uh, a red light that, when I don't need one, uh, people attacking me, anything that I don't want to happen. And James says that we should rejoice when those things that we don't like happen because we know that the testing of faith produces endurance, that the only way faith grows is by being tested. That's why the writer to the Hebrews compares suffering to athletic training. If, if you've ever learned a sport or learned a musical instrument or, or learned any skill, you know how awkward and unnatural it feels in the beginning. But the more you practice it, the more you do it, the more natural it begins to feel the more it just becomes a habit. It becomes part of you. It's some, something you can do without even thinking. And, and the Bible says that's the same way our faith grows. How does God teach you to trust him? 
puts you into situations where you have to trust him. And, and the more you trust him, the more natural trusting him becomes. How does God teach you how to love unlovable people? By bringing unlovable people into your life. And the more you practice loving unlovable people, the more natural loving those people become. How does God teach you to stay calm and not get mad? By bringing irritating situations into your life, right? And the more you practice keeping your cool, staying calm, trusting God, and not reacting, the more natural that becomes. And so James's argument here is, is rejoice whenever you suffer because there's a purpose for that suffering. God wants to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. All of life is designed to make us like Jesus so that when we get to heaven, we'll enjoy heaven. The goal of life is not comfort, it's not pleasure, it's maturity, it's growth. And so rejoice because all that you're going through is necessary. God wouldn't send it your way if it wasn't necessary. That's, the, that's what we looked at last week. That's the first part of living under Christ's authority. When I suffer, I accept that suffering as necessary and good for me, and so I can rejoice in it by faith because I know it's producing the things in me I want. That's the first part. Now, let's look at the second part. Uh, in verses 5 through 8, there's something else we're to do, and we're going to look at two things, uh, the, the promise of wisdom, and then we're going to uh, look at the conditions for wisdom. Let's look at the promise for wisdom. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But tells us that we're still talking about suffering, right? And so not only are you to rejoice when you suffer, but if you lack wisdom, ask God. Now, why would, why would James start talking about our need for wisdom in the context of suffering? Well, think about this. What's the first question you ask whenever something happens you don't want to happen? Why? Why is this happening to me? Well, James already answered, didn't he? so that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. That's the wrong question. The question we should ask is, what should I do? Right? Because when I suffer, I make my worst decisions. In the middle of temptation, or in the middle of illness, or when relationships fall apart, or, or whatever, I go into fight or flight. I want to solve this thing instantly. I want, to, I want to do something to alleviate the pain and escape it, and I make really bad decisions. I want to do something, but God says, but child, you don't know what to do yet. So what, what trials should do is it should remind me to go to God 
to get wisdom of what I should do. See the point? So if I'm living under the authority of Jesus, if I'm trusting him as, as Lord of my life, I'll rejoice when I suffer, and then I'll let that suffering push me deeper into my relationship with God and say, God, what am I supposed to do here? The word that, that, that uh, uh, James uses for wisdom here is a, is a word that was very familiar to the Jews. For the Jews, the word wisdom meant skill in living. Skill in living. It, it's, it wasn't the, the Greek idea of wisdom, which was kind of an academic, theoretical, philosophical wisdom. It was wisdom of the streets. It was knowing how to do the right thing at the right time to get the right results. And, and James says, if any of you lacks wisdom when you're suffering, and by the way, the Greek construction here is, and you will. If anyone lacks wisdom, and you will, all you have to do is ask of God. Nobody is born wise. Wisdom is something you have to accumulate. And the only place we accumulate wisdom is from God. Wisdom comes from God. That's the theme of the book of Proverbs. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Our problem is, ever since Eve thought she could become wise by eating from the only tree God told her not to eat from, we have had this idea that we can be wise apart from God. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes, asked Proverbs? There's more hope for a fool than for him. We all think we're smart on our own. And yet Proverbs says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It'll be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. And so what trials are designed to do is to remind us that we're not too bright. And we need to go to God to find out what he wants us to do. Everything in me says, I can handle this. So God says, well, try this out. And sends a little trial along. How are you doing now? And to finally wake us up that we're not that bright, that we need. God did not create us to live independently of him. He created us to live dependent on him every single day. You say, how do you know that? Because that's the way Jesus lived. Jesus was the only perfect human being. And he said, I did not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I don't say anything on my own initiative. I only say what God tells me to say. I don't do anything on my own initiative. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I didn't even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. I am here every day to find out what God wants me to say, what say find out what God wants me to do, to find out where God wants me to go and do that. That's why he st- spends a whole night praying for the first 12 guys he chooses as disciples because he wants to make sure he's getting God's choice and not his own. That's why when he's tempted after fasting for 40 days and, and the devil says, if you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. Jesus says, is written, uh, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. My job here is not to make bread. My job is to do God's will. And unless God tells me to make bread, I'm not making it. 
And that's why Jesus could say to his disciples, the works I do, you'll do also, and greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father. You'll do miracles just like I do them in total dependence on God. Jesus lived a life of moment-by-moment dependence on God to know what to do and the power to do it, and that's what we're called to do. Problem is, that's really hard for us to do. We are so, we don't realize how independent we are. Even Paul, who walked with God for years and years and years, had to be humbled. There was a time that Paul got really sick, and it was a painful, debilitating sickness. And Paul says, I prayed three times that God would heal me. And every time God said, no, because my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. I can't make you powerful until I make you weak because you are so self-dependent, Paul. And God tells us the same thing. So James says, suffering should remind you of how much you need God. So if when you suffer, if you lack wisdom, and you will, Ask of God who gives to all people generously and without reproach will be given to him. Simple lesson, isn't it? So how does God give you that wisdom? Well, I find a variety of ways. Sometimes the thought just pops into my mind. I was, uh, had to drive all the way across town, pressed for time, there was a lot of traffic, and so for once I just said, Lord, which way should I go? And just a completely different route popped in my mind. I said, well, give it a try. To no one's surprise, it worked perfectly. I thought I should ask all the time. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Sometimes I find that God gives me wisdom slowly over a long period of time. Been working on our community groups and how to make them better at making disciples who make disciples and reaching people with the gospel who aren't part of our groups. And it's, I've been working on this a year and a half at least, and, and it, I'm slowly seeing what God wants us to do. Sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's slow, but that's why Jesus said, keep asking and you'll receive. Keep seeking and you'll find. Keep knocking and the door will be open. Sometimes God just speaks directly through the Bible. That's the way it usually happens for me that, that a ver- I'll ask for wisdom and a verse will pop into my mind that perfectly matches the situation I'm in. And uh, I, I'll think of Luke 12 where, where Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have nothing else they can do, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I'll realize my problem right now is I'm more afraid of people than I am of God, and that is ridiculous. For am I now trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ, and just it all becomes clear. Other times, I'll pray and ask God for wisdom, and I'll get nothing, absolutely nothing. And I'll just say, well, God, I've got to make a decision. Here I go. This is what I'm deciding to do. And then in retrospect, it turns out I was doing exactly what God wanted me to do because God doesn't need to work on me consciously to control what I do. A man's 
Steps are established by the Lord. How can he understand his way? All I have to do is ask for his will, and, and he leads me whether I'm aware of it or not. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it'll be given to him. It's like wisdom is not something that you just kind of store up for a rainy day. And then one day you go, oh, I know, I've got that, I got that in the file somewhere because our memories aren't that good. Wisdom is something we get moment by moment to going to Jesus in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and understanding and asking him what to do. Now, if you know your Bible, it'll be a lot easier to hear his voice because he speaks, the language he speaks is always scripture. But you need his spirit to understand what he wants you to do right now. And when, he, when you come to him, he's not going to say, oh, you again? Can't you figure any of this stuff out on your own? Do I have to tell you everything? Now, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, because you have loved me, I will deliver you. I will set you securely on high because you know my name. You will call and I will answer. I will rescue you in trouble and honor you. With long life, I will satisfy you and let you see my salvation. God loves to answer us because we're living the life of Jesus, a life of total dependence on the Spirit of God. If anyone lacks wisdom, you lack wisdom today? I want to stop just for a minute and pray. Pray silently. And I want you to think about the one area you really need God's wisdom for right now and just take a minute to ask him for wisdom in that. So let's pray. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to everyone generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's the promise. Now, there is a condition on that promise because as James goes on to explain, not everyone who asks receives because there's a right way to ask and there's a wrong way to ask. Let's look at the condition for wisdom. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, which is driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What is the one condition for receiving wisdom from God. Ask without doubting. Ask without doubting. Does that mean that when I ask God for wisdom, if I have just a little sliver of doubt that God won't hear my prayer? No. Because we're dealing with a God we can't see. We're dealing with a God we can't we can't hear. It's just rational to have some doubts about whether God is really hearing you. Remember, remember the, the dad who came to Jesus and asked 
Jesus, if he could heal his son, and Jesus says anything's possible to him who believes. And this poor dad says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. What did Jesus say? Well, your faith isn't strong enough. Can't help you, buddy. No, he heals the guys. That's not the kind of doubt that, that, that it's not doubting that God will give us wisdom. What, what James means when he says, let him ask without doubting, is clarified by that word double-minded. It's the double-minded man, the double-minded woman, who should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And we're going to see that word double-minded throughout the letter of James because it characterizes a sin that is very prevalent among religious people. Double-minded means having two minds. Duh. It means you can't make up your mind. You want, to, you want it both ways, right? You, you want to make God happy, but you want to make yourself happy too. You want to please God, but you also want to please the world. When you're around Christians, you sound just like a Christian. And when you're around secular people, you sound just like a secular person. You just, you've never planted your feet. Every decision is a new decision. If it looks like God will give you the best deal, you'll do what God wants you to do. If it looks like the world will give you the best deal, you'll do what the world says to do. I mean, the, the prayer of the double-minded is, God, make me good. Just not yet. <laughs> and double-mindedness has been about religious people forever. There's a better way to say that. Religious people have been double-minded forever. Sorry about that. A little self-editing here. Israel, for 900 years, tried to worship God and all the local idols as well just to cover their bases, just to make sure. They wouldn't commit themselves to either side. And I remember Elijah saying, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. But make up your minds. That's the double-minded. And the reason God will not give his wisdom to the double-minded is because God does not give wisdom to people who will not follow it. God will not give his wisdom to people who will not follow it. As long as I want to kind of test it, well, what do you think I should do, God? Eh, I don't want to do that. We're not having this conversation, you see. That, that's the point there. That's the point. And so I'm, how do I know if I'm double-minded? Do I want my will in a particular area more than I want God's will? I talk, uh, and I talk to couples who want me to marry them. I always ask them the same question. How, why do you believe that God is calling you to marry? Because it's not for my sake. It's for their sake. Because I believe that you stay married because of the reason you get married. And if you get married for any other reason, oh, he's so cute. 
are she so sweet? Well, the day is going to come when he's not that cute. (laughs) And the day is going to come when she's not that sweet. And if that was your reason for getting married, there's no longer any reason to get married. The only real reason to get married is because God told us to. And God loves us. And he wouldn't have led us into this if it wasn't to bless us. And so we can go through the hard times and the rocky times because we trust God. Well, when I ask that question, I always get the same answer. Yes. Yes, we're sure God is leading us to get married. And I've yet to hear a couple say, well, I'm not really sure if God's leading us to get married or not because they're afraid I won't marry them. But, and in most cases, I think they, they sought God, but there's been a number of couples who the marriage just didn't work out. And people have said to me later on, they said, yeah, you know, we said God let us get married, but we really didn't care what God thought. We wanted to get married. And they paid, they paid the price. That's, that's double-mindedness. Do you want God's will? Do you want God's will in every area? Proverbs 16.3 says, Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, and he will direct your steps. Do you want God's will about your business, about your job, about your employment? Do you really want to be where God wants you to be? Does God want you to take that promotion? Does God want you to move? Does God want you to change churches? How does God want you to educate your children? How does God want you to invest your money? How does does God want you, what does he want you to do in your neighborhood? We could go on and on and on. God has wisdom in all those areas, but you're not going to get that wisdom if, A, you don't ask, And B, you don't commit yourself to doing whatever God tells you because you know he's smarter than you are. And see, that's the big big battle we all face, isn't it? Is we all have our own plan for our lives that we think, if I could just have my plan, if I could just get my way, I am going to be happy. And that is is guaranteed double-mindedness because we're just not that smart. The reason I didn't become a Christian for many years is because I did not want to submit my will to Christ. I didn't want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I was afraid he would ruin my life, that I was better off taking care of myself than trusting him to do it. And two things changed my opinion. One thing was all of my problems were self-created. I I realized that everything that was making me miserable, I was responsible for creating. That I just didn't seem capable of running my life right. The other thing that I realized, that, that God wasn't out to ruin my life. That he couldn't love me any more than he did love me. That's the story of the Bible, isn't it? The Bible is a big, long, complicated book, but it just tells a very simple story. And the simple story is God creates people to love. And when those people in mass turn their backs on God and walk away, he doesn't destroy them and start all over again. 
but he works patiently with them. He promises to send a savior. His son becomes a human being and lives the life we fail to live so that we can be credited by God with his righteousness. He dies the death we deserve to die so that God can forgive all who repent and turn, trust him for forgiveness. He rises from the dead, defeats death so that we can live with God forever, that the whole Bible is the greatest love story that's ever ever been. God loves a very unlovable people and does everything necessary to save us. And when I realized how much God loved me, what a fool I was to worry about what he might do. And I remember, it was right, I'm not sure if it was right before I became a Christian or right after I became a Christian. It was right around there. But I was at a meeting for Christian college students. And the, and the guy used a, a silly illustration that for a dumb guy, it made a lot of sense to me. He said, you know, in a football game, there's a coach that sits up in the press box. And he can see the whole field. And he can see what the defense is doing and what the offense is doing. And if the quarterback will just listen to him in his headphones, he'll know what to do because he'll tell him things he, couldn't, he can't see on the field. But if the quarterback says, I don't need him, and doesn't listen or leaves the headphones off, then he's just dependent on himself and he won't do as well. God is like the coach that sees the whole field. Our choice is whether to listen to him or not. And that, that rang a bell, and that has always been part of my thinking, is that if God loves me as much as the Bible says he loves me, and he's so much smarter than me that the Bible says he is, that he knows things I could never know, what kind of fool would ignore him? That's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and you do, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it'll be given to him. Let your suffering, your trials, your hassles, your, all the things that go wrong, let them push you deeper into your relationship with God, rather than deeper into yourself. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your promise of wisdom to everyone who asks. I pray that we won't keep banging our heads against the wall, but we'll flee to you and find out what you want us to do and do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.